And welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hey Simon. Hey Simon. Uh, today's show is an uh, end of year bonus episode. Uh, later in the show we're going to be doing our first ever uh, end of year Impressions of America awards. Uh, but first we're going to talk about films, and specifically films that meant a lot to us when we were young. Uh, this gives us a chance to talk about films we love, and it also allows you, the audience, to learn a little bit more about us. Um, so we've each picked two films, and uh, Vaughn, you're going to go first with your choice. And as part of that, we also get to introduce my better half, Ebba, who is also a big fan of this film. So Vaughn, do you want to go ahead and introduce what your first film is? Yes, I do. Thanks, Simon. Um, my first film is The Lion King from 1994. Disney's The Lion King. Um, it's great. It's a good film. <laughs> I've loved it since I was a small child. Um, it's still my comfort film now. If I'm feeling out of sorts and need to kind of like reground myself in in some comforting, nostalgic love. Um, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't know the kind of plot of The Lion King just from living in society, even if you haven't seen it. But the plot is that Matthew Broderick is a lion and he accidentally is part of, he's present for the murder of his father and believes that he himself murdered his father, Mufasa, James Earl Jones, aka Darth Vader. And he runs away to a hippie colony with um, Timon and Pumbaa. And they instill in him the horrible wisdom of Hakuna Matata, meaning have no worries at all in anything you do. And then eventually it all catches up with him when his childhood sweetheart comes and berates him for being a lazy hippie. And then he comes back and fights Scar, his uncle, and wins back the Pride Lands. It's great. Amazing movie. It really is. Hi, Abba. On. How are you? I'm good. Toby was not enthused by that. But, but, but why do you why do you people like this movie? What, what is what's what is it about the the movie that you like? Parental murder. The parental <laughs> murder. Yeah, and the music is fantastic. The, the music is absolutely amazing. Like that's the first thing that I think of if someone says The Lion King, or all the amazing songs. Yeah, it's scored by Elton John. Like, yeah, come on. It's fantastic. I also, this will piss you off. I have a Hakuna Matata tattoo that I got when I was 18 years old. I mean, I, I don't hate you for that. I mean, I oh. hate Bond for other reasons, but not for that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I specifically meant Toby. I thought Toby was gonna. No, no, I don't. I don't. Wow. I, I. This is an interesting thing, actually. I got the tattoo when I was eighteen. Mm-hmm. And about two years ago, I realized that it's a terrible philosophy, and I was like, "Oh shit, this is on my body now." Um, 
And that that's not supposed to be the takeaway of the film. The takeaway of the film is supposed to be you can't run from your past, so you have to deal with your trauma. And funnily enough, I started doing that about five years ago, dealing with my own trauma. And then it kind of clicked that I've been taking the wrong message from The Lion King um, <laughs> for about a decade. So well, more than that, actually, but a decade since it's been on my body physically. Um, no, that's really interesting. Isn't it interesting? I love how we kind of grow with these films because when I was a teenager, it meant so much to me to have this kind of idea of no worries. Mm -hmm. And I say no worries constantly still now. And I just, it resonated so much Hakuna Matata and I don't regret getting the tattoo. Let me say that clearly because it meant so much to me as a teenager. And like people say, what if your views change as you're older and now you have a tattoo you don't want? It meant so much to me in a formative time of my life that I got it tattooed on my body. So that makes it inherently important to me for all of time, whether it changes meanings or not throughout that time. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, it, now it's, looking it's back, not like, it it's changed. not like a proper terrible uh, philosophy either. Like it's not if you like if you change, like you might change your views, but it's not terrible. Yeah, it's not like yeah. cruel Nazi or anything. Yeah, I wasn't sure if I could say that or not. <laughs> that's that's Vaughn's other eighteen-year-old tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, in a different way. Well, no, my... we know about Vaughn's uh, voting past and, and teenagers. Hey, none of that. When my, I'm my first tattoo is actually when I was sixteen. It was another philosoph philosophical thing. Sorry, sixteen. All the beans. Uh, sorry. Fill the beans. We want to know what it was. It it was pretentious as fuck. Ready for this? Cogito ergo sum from Descartes. Oh, yeah. I think therefore I am. <laughs> pretentious as fuck. But that one has also changed meaning for me as I've gotten older and kind of thought deeper on my tattoos and, and the philosophies that I kind of hold and carry with me through life. Uh -huh. And I just, I find it so fascinating how, how we can return to these things and they grow with us and you get something different out of them i i really love the lion king still today because it was so important to me at a formative time when i was going through a lot of personal kind of challenges on my own and i was looking for my own kind of hippie colony with timon and pumbaa and hakuna matata just really resonated then and then when i got older i realized actually i should be looking at rafiki's philosophy and now I would say that both of them in balance are right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Right. Um, is there anything else you want to add on The Lion King? Um, I don't know. Did, did you have you seen the the sort of live version? Have you seen the the 2019 version as well? The the sort of I have. Yeah, Beyonce. Beyonce and uh, with with Beyonce and yeah. um, Donald Glover. Donald Glover, thank you. Yeah, I'd, I'd love Steph to know Rowan. what you think about it, Vaughn, because I have my thoughts on it <laughs> that are not so positive. Hmm. I I thought it was a really beautiful kind of homage to the original. It's definitely a remake and not an adaptation or um reimagining or anything it's it's pretty scene for scene they change some minor things um and they add a song of course so that they can try for an oscar 
but I, I thought it was very visually stunning and just in spirit, it was a fun time. I don't think it needed to be done. If they were going to like, if they were going to do it, they could have updated some things or changed some things and um, made it more of its own film. But mm-hmm. I didn't hate it. I did see it though in Ireland with one of my friends and there were about 32 little girls there and they were yelling and screaming the entire time and we were livid. So that kind of colored my my viewing of it, but no, I didn't hate it. It was a it was a fine time, I think. I also what get angry when I see children, so I understand that. <laughs> I just ask Yvonne, do you have a favorite song? Hmm. It changes a lot, but I'm going to say, can you feel the love tonight? At the moment. Classic choice. I know it is. Um, Thank you, Simon. <laughs> right. Shall we, uh, shall we close up on The Lion King and move on to another film then? Yeah, go on. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, Ebba. Thank you very much. I just Thanks, like to wish, wish you all Merry Christmas. Or Merry Christmas, Ebba. Or like we would say in Sweden, Gjordjul. Thank you, Ebba. That's definitely the podcast going downhill now since she's leaving the room. So apologies to everyone. Um, well, that was lovely. And thank you for that uh, deeply personal take on Lion King. Um, I can go next if you want. Uh, my first film is uh, Donnie Darko, which uh, came out in 2001 and is a science fiction psychological thriller. And it was uh, written and directed by Richard Kelly and stars a whole host of people, uh, including Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Jenna Malone, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Drew Barrymore, and Patrick Swayze. And this is a sort of classic case of seeing a film as a teenager and it just leaving a big impression. Um, it was quite a big cult film over in the UK, and I believe one of the songs from the film actually became a Christmas number one in the UK. It was such a kind of cult movement at the time. Um, it really is one of those films where I think if you see it at an appropriate age, it can kind of take a hold of your imagination. Um, I watched it again recently and I was still really impressed by it. It's the story of the film is kind of hard to explain, but essentially it's a, a teenager um, who um, is sleepwalking and um, uh jet engine from an airplane crash lands in his house in his parents house and it would have crushed him if he hadn't been sleepwalking um when he is uh sleepwalking he basically sees a a vision of this uh person in a giant bunny suit that tells him that the end of the world's coming in about 28 days um and um there's kind of like this almost i suppose sort of countdown to this event happening and his behavior, kind of, J.J. Hall's character's behavior kind of gets stranger and he starts to look into things like time travel and that kind of thing. And the film kind of plays out um, almost like a dream. It is surreal and the, um, the characters you meet along the way, some of them can kind of seem out of place. And it's scored by this just fantastic... Um, soundtrack of, of 80s music the film itself is set in the 80s and it does a fantastic job of 
transporting you to this very, I guess, white America, uh, middle class or upper middle class existence. And it's kind of like an hallucinatic dream. I mean, it really does kind of make you uh, fall into this world. And I won't kind of spoil how the film ends, but it is it is as much a kind of a journey you go through as it is just a, a plot a summary that you could give. So even if I were to tell you exactly what happened, you probably wouldn't take in the essence of the film because so much of the film is about the feeling that you get and the visuals that you see and the the emotion that kind of comes through from the different characters as, as they experience it. And as I said, the, the music in the film and this choice and the other film that I've picked both are based around, I mean, they both have music at the centre of them. And, and for myself, uh, growing up as a, as a teenager, uh, music, and especially American music, was such a, a key part of, of growing up. And um, taking in films such as Donnie Darko was a, a way to kind of take in new music that maybe I hadn't heard before. And it's it's a film that if you haven't seen, I think it's, I would highly recommend it. And it's also one of those things that also feels kind of off its time as well, that this sort of transition, I mean, it came out in 2001 and it is kind of a, an oddball film. It's not many films kind of like it and, and it does feel like a transition between the the sort of independent cinema, which um, was still around at that time and then, you know, just a decade or so, so later, you know, we films themselves have sort of transitioned to the point where cinema is almost kind of exclusively becoming, uh, you know, Marvel and DC and James Bond. And to see this little film with these um, very recognisable faces in it and this great soundtrack is, it's, yeah, it's, it's still a joy to watch. And I, I felt it kind of held, held up. Um, on, on rewatch when I watched it earlier this year. So I picked this film because, as I say, the film, uh, as a, as a t- teenage boy watching another teenage boy kind of go through uh, through angst, that, that meant something to me, as, as it does for a lot of uh, angsty teenagers. And also the, the music itself is so... Um, it transports you into, into this 80s world. So uh, Donnie Darko was my first pick. I don't think either of you guys have seen this, so we probably won't linger on this too much. But um, no, I, I've, I've seen it before. I think you've seen it before, uh, Happy Tom. Yeah, so I was. I, I, I thought it was a really great, great uh, movie. I loved uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's performance, and I loved the the use of the sort of um, the other worlds in it as well. Um, yeah, no, I, I, uh, it's it's quite a it's quite a, a psychedelic and and mm. in some ways quite depressing movie. Yes, and you know, I, I, I've, I've always been a, a big fan of the movie, but on, unlike you, I think I, I saw it uh, in my early twenties as opposed mm-hmm. to my, my teens, so it doesn't have that sort of formative, yes, uh, um, sort of uh, register f- for me. No, that makes sense, and I do wonder how I would have felt if I'd seen this, you know, twenty three or twenty four, rather than at fifteen or however old I was when I first saw it. And again, I guess that's part of the the experience, as you say, formative experience that, that we have with d- different films. You know, if you see a film when you're 13 or 14, your, your brain is still developing, you're, you're taking in new things. And, you know, the, the coolest thing you see at 14 is like the coolest thing you've ever seen. Um, so 
I would, uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. And as you say, Toby, it does kind of feel like a, like a, like a trip, like you are, you are experiencing something which is kind of almost otherworldly. Um, Toby, do you want to go on to your first choice then? So my first choice is the Great Mouse Detective, and um, yeah, I, I, I sort of, I see my experience uh, with films in, in sort of two paradigms. So like, there's the the period before I watched The Departed, and the and the period after it. And I think in the period before I watched The Departed, I I, I wouldn't consider myself to be a film buff or or someone who watched loads and loads of films. I watched the, the films that everybody watched on, on television and at the cinema. And, um, and I would, you know, uh, movies, especially uh, from this, the period that this, this movie came in, obviously it's the, the Great Mouse Detective. It's a 1986 animated film from Disney in that sort of 1980s uh, Disney period uh, by John Musker, who was the, later directed The Little Mermaid and, and Aladdin. And a number of sort of, sort of important um, Disney films of that period. Uh, I I really always loved the the the, the film. Um, the, the the narrative goes that you you know you have a a toy maker and inventor who lives with his uh, daughter uh, Olivia Havisham, and the 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 toy maker is kidnapped by this um, figure called Rattigan and his his ally, uh, who's a bat, uh, who steals the toy maker away, brings him to Rattigan's evil lair. And Olivia Havisham is forced to try to find her way to the, to the house of Basil of, of Baker Street. And, and they come together to try to find her father. And it's a, it's a good premise. Uh, it's, it's in the mold of, uh, sort of great... Um, Sherlock Holmes uh, novels and uh, it, within Sherlock Holmes jo- genre, but it's 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 mice. Um, it, you know, it's it, it's a movie that's uh, really engaging. Um, has a lot of different scenes that pop through a number of different genres. You've got the detective genre. You've got a little bit of a mafia genre. You've obviously got um, a a villain in Rattigan who just chews up scenery like immensely like if this had been a live action performance i think he you know the the actor would have won an oscar for uh the performance and um for me like i always liked villains when i was young and and when i watched um television and uh an anime and i, I always sort of voted for the bad guy and um i was, was, was never really comfortable with with uh heroic characters especially at that time but Rassigan actually always kind of scared me um you know the kidnapping young girls um he 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 was a, a rat in the in the world of of of, of mice uh, he had these you know he, he towards the end of the movie um when there's the the clash between Basil of Baker Street and, and Rassigan Rassigan like turns into a rat you know went you know as, as opposed to his um his presentation as a just as a large mouse he t- really turns into a rat and takes um over basil really physically as well 
and um and and he becomes kind of a scary character so as you know as a character i always um was i was actually really scared of when i was a kid and uh yeah i i i think it was in my top you know um probably top five movies i you know i i would say i, I loved um disney of this period i'm a, mm-hmm. a big fan of uh oliver and company and um aladdin and um and i think the the 1980s disney um that you know the, the tim burton worked in i think it, it it tends to get a bad rap because i think a lot of those really small animated movies are really good and um and yeah so i, I it's, it's a movie I, I really enjoyed as a kid um one that um actually kind of kind of kind of scared me it, it's 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 only like the runtime is like 75 minutes it's it's very short but i always felt that it was much longer than than it was it's it's you know it's, a, it's about a, uh you know a group of mice but it's kind of titillating as well you know you've got the the scene in the in the bar with the with the with the song and dance um and which which was really engaging about um sailors and bums and you've got this um singer who like takes off her, her clothes she's just a mouse but it's kind of there's there's something there to it you know all the characters seem really alive yeah and then you know like for me in the period before i watched the departed you know i watched all the movies that, that everyone else watched uh, all these disney movies the bug's life aladdin I, I i saw space jam like 20 times <laughs> i've I, I seen this movie i think like 20 times and uh and you know i and i was um and actually the 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 wider context for this is that you know i was uh, socialized in in my um in my youth around a lot of other kids so i went to an after school club because um just just for for childcare reasons um and um we we you know we watch D- dvds of disney movies that's, that's the stuff that, that we watched that's the stuff that we were engaged in i, I went to see tarzan at the cinema and, and all of this so yeah like um you know i think just to go back to vaughn on the last podcast when she was talking about you know that the wwe is, is like kind of a window into a, a sort of whole other world for her sort of formative experience that sort of hazy experience i do see like the the late 90s and the early 2000s are quite hazy i i don't really have many formative moments that i can really pinpoint things were always okay and uh movies like this uh certainly were were the the things that were, that were around in in the period really before i became a a, a cinephile i think this is a great choice, Toby, and also it's just another example of, as well as I know you, I wouldn't have expected you to pick this film. Um, yeah. It's a fantastic choice. I probably haven't seen it for like 20 years. Um, one, because I'm exceedingly old at this point. And also I just, I haven't, haven't seen it since I was probably perhaps younger when, than when you saw it. I'm not sure, but... Um, but it's just really well written as well, you know, there's like... It is. And it, it also... From Rassigan where he's like, you know, th- this plan... This- this is a plan that will live on in infamy. And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, it's like that kind of language and the sort of like the winters of my mind is always, I always think about, oh, this will live on in infamy. I was like, where, where, where did I get that from? It must have been from a novel or something. But I was actually from this movie as well. You know, it's this really well written uh, movie as well. And Rattigan, I, I so distinctly remember not just Professor Rattigan, the character, but I remember his face and 
as some of the things he says. And as you say, it was actually Vincent Price who did the voice of, of Professor Ratigan. And it, it's a fantastic performance and it, it really is so enjoyable uh, as a film to watch. Um, it, it is well plotted and it's got good characters and I'm delighted you picked it because it, 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 as soon as you, you mentioned in, in our chat that that's the one you picked, it just a flood of memories came back. So yeah, excellent choice. Yeah, and there's no, there's obviously the runtime's very short. There's no lulls in the movie. No. All the scenes are really great and they move really, really quickly. And it's surprising as well, you know, like the scene where they they chase the bat to Rattigan's lair and, and Rattigan actually had all set up the whole scene previously and, and how witted about uh, Basil of, of, of Baker Street. And, and they have this dynamic with each other that's really alive as well. It's not. You know, it's animated, but it's not, there's no woodenness to it. They're, they're, they're natural enemies, and you can see that they, they're really cut at each other as well. No, no, I, I really love, love this movie. I'm, I'm happy that uh, on the rewatch, I, I, I was still very engaged with this movie. Um, I could still, like, um, you know, finish the sentences that were, were being started by various uh, different characters. And, yeah, I think I probably re- like Rattigan a lot more on this watch than I did when I was a kid. He, he kind of scared me as a kid, but um, you know, he's I also so physically think physically imposing as well. Yeah, he's, he's physically imposing. He's different from the other. Yeah, I think that's so. Like um, when Olivia Havisham's father, when he's uh, sort of trying to man- manhandle him, uh, when he's like threatening him about you know bringing his daughter here, he looks like he can just break his arms by just pulling them. And so he's just so physically imposing and the, the space is always quite closed around him. But he, yeah, he just sort of do- dominates uh, the screen. And also, like, there's a little bit of, like, you know, obviously at the beginning of this movie, um, Basil Baker Street bursts into his house and he's in, like, a, you know, like the, the way Victorians would have seen people from Asia, you know, and that sort of... Um, almost like uh, Asian face the thing that he's doing, which is, you know, which many people have picked out as, as a little bit, um, you know, as a little bit poor form for them. But also it, it is it is sort of in keeping with the style of the relationship be- between the Victorians and, 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 and China, especially because they've, you know, they flooded the country with with opium uh, at the time. But 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 aside from that, there's also the fact that Rattigan is being put down by a lot of these mice because he is a rat, which mm. is kind of like, like they're having this, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you're a low life sewer rat, and everyone's trying to pull this out. And it's like, it's okay that he's a rat. I mean, it's, it's bad that he's a villain who wants to take over the, the country and, and, you know, uh, take money away from children and, and old people and uh, install himself as the, you know, as the, as the authoritarian ruler. But, you know, the, him being a rat is a little, that's a little weird for, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird message to convey, I think, uh, to, 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 to children. Although obviously it's just, it's just anthropomorphic. There, there isn't that much to it, but yeah, that, that, that was, was a little bit weird on, on, uh, on 25th viewing uh, of the movie. Yeah, that's a and good 10 point. years off the last time I saw them. <laughs> I do wonder if the Disney of today would try and steer away from that. And you see with things like uh, Zootopia, I think it was called, they, they tried to maybe send up more of the ideas around which animals are dangerous and which aren't and that, that kind of thing. So I do wonder if this is more of a sort of 
a classic take of of kind of pre twentieth pre twenty first century ideas of these things, and you know the, the mice are nice and the rats are bad, and then maybe if this film was made in twenty twenty, maybe they would try and subvert that a little bit more. But yes, it, it is an interesting interesting to think of you now. Um, is there anything else we'd like to, to add to this, uh, Vaughn? I don't know if you have any thoughts on the film. I do, and I'll keep it very brief. Um, I really love that you chose this, Toby, for a lot of reasons. And I especially love how you separate out times in your life by how by when you saw The Departed. I love that a lot. And that, <laughs> that was like a defining moment. I think that's really interesting. Um, but The Great Mouse Detective is such a great film. And it was such a blast from the past when you said it in the chat, because I haven't thought about it in so long. But um, to kind of piggyback on on your own sentimental memories with it that film was my first introduction to London and that like watching that was the first time I ever conceived of London as a place and I really kind of fell in love with it in that movie and now I live here and I forgot that until you brought up the the great mouse detective so thanks for thanks for that memory I love that we're doing this. This is such a nostalgia thing. It's great. You'd have thought that three people who love history would love to dive into nostalgia. This has worked out <laughs> well for us. Um, yes, excellent choice, Toby. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just looking at some of the screenshots now from the film and I'm just, it really is, I'm sort of diving back into being a kid and mm. uh, yeah, full of nostalgia. Beautiful movie. Yeah, it really does. Some of the imagery as well, I just, it's bringing back certain memories. I, don't, I do need to go watch it again now. Um, right. Do we want to uh, swing back your way, Vaughn? Do you want to uh, pick your second film? Yeah, sure. Um, so this follows on nicely, actually, because this film is about nostalgia. Um, my second pick is Pleasantville. It's a film from 1998 starring Tobey Maguire and Reese Witherspoon. Uh, Jeffrey Daniels is in it, William H. Macy, it's a great cast, and it's about these two teenagers, Toby and Reese, who don't get along, they're siblings, they have a really contentious relationship, and Toby's character is like kind of a nerd, and Reese's is like a bad girl kind of vibe, uh, very 90s also, so Toby is like obsessed with this TV show about the 1950s. It's an old show. It's in black and white and everything in the town is perfect. And every person there is perfect and they live in Pleasantville. So um, through kind of supernatural intervention, he is handed a remote that can cast him into the world of the television show. And Reese Witherspoon accidentally goes with him. So they kind of show up in this town being their 1998 selves in this fictional 1950s perfect town. And their presence there starts to change things in the town. They start bringing kind of new ideas to people. And um, it's, it's so perfect that like fire doesn't even exist there. And the firefighters are only there to, to rescue cats who get stuck in trees. It's very kind of quintessentially small town Americana from the 1950s in this idealized, romanticized view. 
so Reese being a bad girl, she introduces the mother of the family to masturbation and the mother has an orgasm and lights a tree on fire with her orgasm. It's a fantastic scene and the firefighters don't know what to do because they've never <laughs> seen fire. Um, and it, it really kind of shows how their, their modern ideas and their like women first and also reading books um, can really impact society in a very large way. And as, as these things start slowly happening, color comes to this town. So there's a rose that turns red and then um, the mother's lips turn red and it starts to become like a technicolor television show. And the people who haven't been kind of enlightened stay in black and white. And there, there starts to be an, uh, a struggle between the people who have become enlightened and become colorized and the people who are still in black and white, there, there become, there starts a riot, and they start burning books, um, trying to kind of segregate the people who are now visually in color out of the town, and ultimately, the kind of progressive ideas and books and masturbation went out, and the whole town emerges in this technicolor view. It's really beautiful. And when I was a teenager, I'm, and still today, I'm just fascinated by the whole concept of the film. Um, I think now even more, I understand that I've always been fascinated with the post-war period and the 1950s. Mm -hmm. So this kind of like Joan Cleaver-esque, um, leave it to be the leave it to beaver show that they're changing with their kind of modern ideas it just really fascinates me so i was going to ask about that because obviously um it, it ties in nicely um with some of the stuff you've you study and um mm -hmm. your own kind of um interest from an academic point of view I, I don't know when how old you were when you saw this film but do you think there was i'm not sure if it's a cause or effect kind of thing but do you think this had an impact on you know your interest in wanting to study not just history but a particular sort of period of media history or do you think it sort of only tangentially related in, in that respect or do, do you think it had can you see some sort of formative sort of path there where you started to even if it was subconsciously kind of get uh, interested in in studying this period that's a really great question. Um, so I've, my kind of fascination with the post-war period started with my great-grandparents and listening to them talk about their lives in the post-war period um, as a kid. So I think that is what brought me to the, the film. Um, I think I saw it just accidentally on like Encore or something at 11, when, when I was 11. Um, and then I became obsessed with it and bought it on VHS when I was like 12. Did you, did and then you I watched feel it. that it was like, um, 
was it was it ever connected to your your life in terms of the philosophy of the film it's like this um bridge between the pleasant leave it to beaver world and this more rebellious color world were those like feelings that you felt at at that age about your own formative experience or is it I think in a way, yes. It it was more kind of a fascination with how ideas can change things mm-hmm. um, and how people can affect change. And this is definitely me looking back retrospectively because as a teenager, I would not have said that that's why I was watching the film. Mm-hmm. But I think I think that's what it was because it really kind of resonated to the point that I still think about it frequently um, over a decade later, probably 15 years, at least since the first time I saw it. It's just something that's really stuck with me for a very long time. And I, I think back on it a lot. As I said earlier with The Lion King, I come back to it a lot and think about the philosophy and kind of implications within it. Um, I think also it didn't directly inform what i study mm-hmm. but it is as i said something i think about a lot and now i'm kind of questioning whether it has impacted what i study and i i i don't know it probably has on some kind of subconscious level because I'm trying, what I'm doing with my work is reading back into the 1950s and how ideas changed things and how Hollywood specifically changed things by Mm -hmm. making small tweaks uh, to kind of traditional narratives and and built a whole kind of cultural shift um, away from an old school paradigm. So yeah, I think I think it does probably have a lot to do with how obsessed I was with Pleasantville as a teenager. Have you guys seen the film? No, I have I've, I haven't seen the film, but I'm just thinking back to my own like mm. like when I was 12, like I was the kid telling other kids to listen to this particular kind of music. The kid telling other kids actually to jerk off actually <laughs> and the you know the kid you know coming with um sort of strange and interesting ideas about the relationship with god and things like this Mm. and i wonder what it would have been like if i had seen this film would i have seen like a mirror to myself almost you know this is this like yeah because almost like i did self-identify as someone who's like enlightening people in in a way i don't know but Mm. yeah it says it sounds like a really interesting film i saw the film I've only seen it once and it was was quite a long time ago. So I only sort of remember parts of it. I do remember being intrigued by it. And again, it was just one of those things that you, you see as a teenager, you know, late at night on, on TV. And for myself, it just, again, I guess it, it played into my my interest, my growing interest as a, as a young person in history and in a particular sort of American history and media history. And I... I when I was on the episode of Armchair Historians, which each of us have all guested on that podcast separately, the uh, thing I was talking about, the history I was talking about, was about 
um, 20th century, sort of latter half 20th century media, um, particular films, and how they kind of reflected and reflected, refracted um, this idea of, of history and of media history and how uh, specifically in the late 90s, we, we got to a point where uh, a lot of films were trying to break down um, their relationship to media and the audience or um, a character and their own reality. And we see that sort of time and time again, where um, films such as Pleasantville um, and, and many others are um, reflecting on what had come before it and the, the history of kind of 20th century America. And I, I think from my, from my own point of view, I, I think it's the type of film which has a great deal of interest for myself because of, of you know, of a particular viewpoint of view, characters literally going inside a television, you know, very different, but, you know, the way that, say, Back to the Future literally transported its, its character to 1950s, this obviously transports it to a fictional 19, 1950s inside a television set. And um, thinking about it today, I guess from a time period point of view, it'd be closer to if someone today would tra trans sort of travel back into 1980s television and you see something like One Division, which played with that whole setup as well, which was all about um, presenting characters inside the world of 1950s and 60s and 70s and 80s television um, sitcoms. And I think, and this is something I explored on the Armchair's Histories podcast, I think actually sitcoms are a really interesting way to view uh, American media and how each, uh, each decade you kind of get a different interpretation and visual style and what it means and what the what the sort of classic family setup or what the 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 story that's trying to be trying to be told and how, how maybe um certain tv shows and sitcoms of that time will either play really into it or they're trying um sort of divert away from it and so yeah so bringing it back to this film it's i remember liking the film but like i say it has been a long time since i've seen it but it's one of those classic examples of, of seeing something like this on late night TV and going, oh, that's a really interesting thing to do. And um, I do remember enjoying it. Yeah, it's it's interesting you just brought up WandaVision because when I was watching WandaVision, I likened it to Pleasantville mm. uh, when I yep. was talking about it with friends and how absolutely fascinating it is. And I think um, I think you were right right on with sitcoms are a really great way to kind of track American history. Um, all types of media are if, if they extend past one decade, just looking at the um, changes across them is really fascinating, mm -hmm. which is something I'm currently doing with Christmas films. Um, but it's, yeah, I think Pleasantville really captures this brilliant sense of Americana through the fictionalized romanticized version. Um, and obviously there are kind of parallels to race riots and racial tensions in the 1950s leading up to civil rights. And this is a like post Rodney King uh, film looking backwards at a pre-civil rights movement era. Um, so all of that kind of commentary is just fascinating as well. 
I think I, if you haven't seen the film, I would highly recommend it even just for, for one viewing to go, that was, that was cool or that was interesting, or you might hate it, but I would really recommend it because it's something that really just gets me every time. And I end up thinking about it for weeks after I rewatch it. Um, but it, it definitely warrants a, a first watch. And because Vaughn is a film historian, if she recommends something, you automatically have to go watch it. That's how it works. Yeah, it's illegal not to. Yes, agreed. And you don't want to do anything illegal because Vaughn would never do that. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, shall we move on? Um, I'll go with my second film and then Toby, you can, can finish up on a film that might be The Departed or might not be The, the Departed. Um, so my second choice is a film called Almost Famous. Uh, which came out in 2000 and uh, is a comedy drama written and directed by Cameron Crowe and stars a whole host of people again, uh, Billy Crudup, Francis McDormand, Katie Hudson, and the main character played by Patrick Fugit, I believe is, is uh, how you pronounce his name. Uh, it tells the story of, of a journalist who is um, writing for uh, Rolling Stone in, in the early 1970s and he, he goes on tour with a rock band a fictional one called uh, Stillwater, and it's his efforts to to get a a cover story published. And at the same time, he he's trying to desperately interview these people so he can go back to his school and actually uh, graduate. And his mum, played by Frances McDormand, is is kind of desperate for him to to return and and return to to a normal life. Um, this is a a classic sort of. A, it's a classic story in the sense that it's it's a young person growing up and experiencing new things, which again kind of plays into the Donnie Darko theme of me picking a film about teenage life. And again, that sort of makes sense with the time I saw this film. It also makes sense in the sense that this is when I was discovering new music. And so, you know, 70s rock was was of interest to me because, you know, you, you were discovering this music before your own time and um, starting to, to find uh, musicians, both real and fictional. And the film does a great job of transporting you into, um, into this world. And I think Roger Ebert, when he reviewed the film, I think the only line of, of his review is something like, oh, this film is just like a big warm hug. And it, it, it kind of is. I mean, it, it does you know, have its you know, rock and roll and sex and drugs kind of thing, but it, it's played in a relatively safe kind of way that makes you just want to spend time with these characters. And for... For anyone who's you know ever had dreams of making it in an industry, um, seeing this young person um, kind of stretch their limits and learn new things and experience life, and especially experience life at a very particular time where it was maybe um, more acceptable for what was basically a 15-year-old kid to go on tour with a rock band and experience uh, on all sorts of new experiences. It's, it was a film I watched and rewatched a lot as a, as a teenager. And I, as someone who was getting more and more into rock music, both off rock music off that time and off kind of um, historical rock music, it did kind of set my imagination wild of what kind of could be done. And you kind of imagine yourself being in that position where, you know, if, if you lived a different life, if you were born at a different time, maybe rock music would have been such an important thing that you would have fallen to being a journalist at 15 and you would have started going on, on tour with these rock bands. Um, 
it's a film I watched, um, I think it was end of last year and still really holds up, still is a really interesting watch. And the Francis McDormand character is just, uh, remains a, a really funny character in the sense that the love for her children kind of shines through, but at the same time she is, can be really overprotective and can be dismissive of other people's viewpoints. There's a hilarious scene where um, his sister, played by Zoe Deschanel, is trying to explain why um, she's, you know, wanting to leave home and she goes to um, put, put on a piece of music and mother dismisses it. And I think around about, say, it might be in an earlier scene as well, where they're trying to talk about Simon and Garfunkel and she's trying to explain how Simon and Garfunkel, Zoe Deschanel's character is trying to explain how so, uh, Simon and Garfunkel's poetry and um, the former uh, characters just like look at their eyes, they're clearly on, like they're clearly on drugs kind of thing for the, the, the album cover. And she's just very protective of her kids and wanting them to uh, grow up in a world that's safe. And at one point, um, Zoe Deschanel tells her little brother that um, that basically, or she's trying to explain to the mother that um, he the he's getting picked on for being kind of because he's so young looking. He's actually he actually skipped a couple of grades, and um, they say they make fun of him behind his back. Back they call him a narc, and she's like, "What's well, a narc?" And she's like, "An narcotics officer." And she's like, "Well, what's wrong with that? That's a perfectly like reasonable uh, thing that you want to grow up and be." And so you have the, this mum who is very protective almost to a fault of wanting to make sure her parents uh, or make sure her kids are uh, kind of kept free from, from this sort of sex drug lifestyle and her kids trying to push away and, and become um, more independent from her. And it's a film that just really works. And I think it, it's, it, it's um, in a sense, it's a more innocent time because um, you look at, especially look at the world around us today and you think of all the trouble that, teenagers can get up to if they were to ever leave their house let alone uh leave their own sort of state and um, it makes you kind of fond for a time where a young person could just get into an adventure and have the time of their life and have formative experiences and it's uh yeah it, it is feels like almost like a dream in itself now that this world ever existed um toby i think you've seen this film before is that right Oh yeah, I've seen I've seen the film before. Um, I'm a big fan uh, of the film. I I echo uh, the words of Roger Ebert um, on this as just being a big hug, uh, basically. Uh, it's like um, Boogie Nights. You know, I always go back and watch the the first uh, scene of that. Um, yeah. And for this, I always go back and watch the tiny dancer scene. Of course, yes. They're uh, getting ready to leave. Uh, they on the bus. And, um, you know, emotions are flying um, and uh, Tiny Dancer plays um, at first. It's like a little thing. It's it's um, it, it sort of exists uh, while the, the, the scene is going and then it sort of takes over and everyone's singing it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's really what I'm left with um, with this movie, obviously. There's um, it's, it's got one really wonderful uh, soundtrack, you know, you got mm -hmm. um Led Zeppelin on here, uh, the Beach Boys, uh, the Who, and it it is that sort of time capsule of of, of a particular of a particular time and the, and the love that you know the, the culture has for for for, for that time and more in in many ways a little bit more of an innocent time 
and um and in a time where novel experiences were happening perhaps a little bit more than they are they are now but again you know it's it's, it's all rose tinted uh glasses and yeah and, and uh, the francis mcdormand character is, is as is, is also like i i've found her to be a very very interesting um in this movie yeah so it's, it's a, again it's a, it's a movie i loved again it's like simon was a lot cooler than me as a teenager like, like <laughs> i did not know what led zeppelin was i had not uh uh i had not seen donnie darko like yeah you would you would we'd not have hung out you yeah, <laughs> you probably wouldn't have liked me um but yeah no i think it's a really really great movie well don't forget toby i was around in the 1970s when all this stuff was happening oh so. yeah of course yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know voting for rfk and all that kind of stuff um <laughs> uh right <laughs> Uh, Vaughn, I don't think you've seen that film, but I would I would recommend both um, Down Darko and Almost Famous, and I think yeah. you might you might enjoy Almost Famous uh, purely from a historical point of view, taking into that time. But also the film itself does actually explore the idea, and it is mentioned quite a lot that um, that maybe the corporations are starting to take over rock, and maybe mm. some, some of the purity is kind of uh, being lost. And uh, the, one of the characters that talks about how. You're basically kind of around for the the death rattle, and uh, the character, the teenage character is like, well, at least I'm around for that, I guess. Uh, which is kind of interesting to think of how corporate we are now compared to something, say, something like 1971 or whenever the film is set. Um, so that in itself is a is an interesting uh, interesting thing to view. Um, although because I'm not a film historian, I feel free to ignore my my suggestions. Um, yeah, no, you, they're bad. They're all bad. Um, I haven't seen either of those films, Donnie Darko or Almost Famous. I think I've seen like bits of Almost Famous um, when it was on TV or something, but I, I've never sat down and watched the whole film. Um, but I very much see how both of these films are your picks, Simon. And mm-hmm. I do want to echo Toby there that I think that you chose your films to make you sound cooler because... <laughs> Because I don't believe that you actually watched these films as a teenager, Simon. Having these like profound thoughts about these films. Yeah, it, it's interesting to know that I've got severely less interesting as time has gone by. Yeah, when uh, did that? When did that change? I very much, peaked, I very much peaked about fourteen or fifteen, and then you've been left <laughs> with a, a shell of a man ever since. You peaked um, at fifteen in nineteen seventy. I very much, yeah. It was it was 1947, and we had uh, we had just won the war. Uh, yeah, basically, once color TV came in, I was of no interest to anybody. Um, right, I could talk about the 1940s and what they meant to me all day long, but we should probably move away from my personal experiences. Um, God, you kids are so lucky you never had to fight polio. Um, right, uh, Toby, uh, one film left. Um, it might or might not be The Departed. What what film have you picked? Uh, it, it is The Departed. It is. Uh, yes! Good. The Departed, uh, which is a 2006 um, crime movie uh, based on a Hong Kong film, Internal Affairs. Obviously, the movie's by Martin Scorsese. It uh, follows um, sort of uh, two figures, really. Well, one played by Matt Damon, the other by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Frank Costello, played by Jack Nicholson, plants uh, 
Damon's character as a mole in the Massachusetts, uh, say, uh, PD. Uh, actually, sit, um, he brought him up from when he was uh, very, very young and uh, planted him there. While also uh, Billy Costigan, played by uh, DiCaprio, infiltrates the, the Costello crew. And you see, uh, again, it's like the, the podcast we did on uh, Boston, very much the same sort of um, image and uh, same sociological group, you know, coming out of uh, Southie, coming out of sort of the deprived uh, area, deprived backgrounds, you know, many people in maybe in an era sort of a little bit before this, many people were, you know, would either you know go into crime or, or become a, a police officer. And the lines were quite, were a little bit blurred. And um, even Frank Costello's character knows Martin Sheen's character, even though one's uh, the captain of the states and the, the other is uh, obviously a famous uh, mobster. And um, and yeah, I, I think actually this movie probably changed my life, I think, because like I saw like, yeah, I was like, I wasn't really a movie person. You know, like I played my my GameCube and my my Xbox. I was I was uh, you know Halo and you know I I don't really watch movies and you know I I watch like superhero movies when they were in, in the cinema and and you know with with my friends sometimes. Um, I think The Dark Knight was also kind of a similar experience. It happened a little bit earlier, uh, but. Like I did, I didn't know who Mark Wahlberg was. Like, who who the fuck is Mark Wahlberg? Like, who is Martin Sheen? Like, who is that? I don't know who that was until I watched this movie. Um, I didn't know who Alec Baldwin was. I'm gonna I'm gonna write this is before I saw uh, Thirty Rock. I didn't know who Alec Baldwin was. I certainly had seen uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, but been in titanic right and matt damon i definitely seen because i watched the Bourne movies because they were cool like that was that was a cool action movie but yeah i think uh, and the way i i ended up seeing this movie is a little bit serendipitous because my father had bought this movie like illegally from like a chinese vendor who like sold it outside of like barber shops and stuff and it was like really bad quality and I wasn't close to the television when I watched it. So I was like, I was really quiet, like a couple yards away from the television and just like looking at the movie, not really taking everything in, but knowing that the shit that was happening there was just amazing. It was, it was exciting. I'd never experienced uh, anything like this uh, before. Um, I, I got really into the story uh really into the characters i remember alec baldwin's character when uh they had set up a sting operation and there was a camera guy and he was and the camera guy had set up cameras but he had missed the back of the of the of the area so that the, the chinese had got gotten away but the deal had gotten away in terms of the chinese um and uh alec baldwin picks picks up that guy and he starts hitting hitting him and i was, I was this is what like what is this and the, the and then the the way this movie ends the, with this, which is a quite intri- intricate plot, you know, there's there's characters in here who actually like uh, who are so in deep cover that they will shoot the cops. Um, they're they're the mobsters, and they will shoot the cops 
but they're they're cops, right? And they and you know there's, there's a character who, who who dies during one of those kinds of uh, collisions, and his his revelation that he was a police officer only gets revealed towards the the end of the end of the movie, and uh, so it's quite quite an interesting intricate plot. But the way this movie ends, and like I would have to I have to admit like today because I've seen Eternal Fears, and I've obviously I've seen The Departed many times. Today, um, you know, Damon being taken away by DiCaprio's character, he's in the elevator. Uh, he's just um, stepped away from a police officer who's allowed him to take, uh, who's allowed DiCaprio to take Damon away. And then uh, another cop that Frank Costello has shoots DiCaprio, who was the essentially one of the two main characters and kind of the hero of the story and he dies and then he also kills the cop who was upstairs and then damon kills that cop that was the uh, second frank costello mole and then mark Wahlberg kills matt damon i was like what is this like the the amount of like intrigue and mystery and like it was just it was kind of a maze and i'd never really experienced anything like this before you know like and from from here you know um like i ended up wa- actually watching this movie i remember i wa- watched this movie 10 times um like I, I had a i had a television in my room at that time and i just kept watching this movie i watched it i watched it 10 times over and over again i found out who who the hell this Martin Scorsese guy was. I saw Goodfellas. Um, you know, I, I saw Raging Bull. And I, I you know, I saw, um, I still saw loads of his movies. Then I, I saw Pulp Fiction. I saw all these Tarantino movies. And then I started, you know, watching television, The Wire and, and, and The Sopranos and all this in a very, very short period of time. But it was all triggered by this film. Which, you know, in the in actual fact, in the, the actual watching of this movie was actually really difficult because it had been on, on a, like a on like a bad Chinese copy that had been bought by my dad for like, like I think like two pounds or something like that. And I wasn't actually watching it properly. But yeah, I, I really do think like this movie changed my, my life because I didn't know who any of these people were, any of the like actors. Like they were just like actors, like character actors you watch on television. I didn't know who Martin Sheen was, you know. Like maybe like a year afterwards, I was watching Apocalypse Now, and I, I knew the fuck out of who Martin Sheen was. And I was watch, I was actually watching um, The West Wing and stuff like that, mm-hmm. like a year afterwards. But before this movie, like I, I wasn't, I wasn't into cinema. Like I wasn't a, a big cinema guy. I played video games. Uh, you know, I watched the big um, blockbuster movies when they came out. But yeah, no, it's, this movie was, uh, yeah, it, it kind of changed everything for me because like from there from then on, you know, and I still haven't been able to make a movie, but from then on, like, I kind of like wanted to be, in, you know, involved in this thing, wanted to write about it. And and yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a vector for me in my life, uh, definitely, I think. And now you know who the fuck Mark Wahlberg is. So yeah, and I know who the uh, Marky Mark and all this. Mm-hmm. Like, Alec, Baldwin. Mark. Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin. Alec yeah. Baldwin. Like I don't know who, who the hell is Alec Baldwin. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Now I just want him to come on the podcast. Yeah. Now you want him to come. Like, on. Uh, 
events <laughs> may may have led to that not being possible for a while. I knew I knew I knew Matt Damon because he because he jumped through walls and shit. Like I knew about him, but I didn't really know. <laughs> I didn't really know anyone else. So like, uh, it's yeah. It's I think I saw DiCaprio before, but I wasn't sure. It's an interesting choice because I'm a little bit older than both of you, so I saw this. Uh, I would have been what 47 when this came out. No, I would have been about 17 uh, when this came out. So. I think I may, might have rented the, the DVD or, or or something around about this time after it came. I don't, didn't see it in the cinema, but I do remember it being out. I'd seen various Scorsese films. Um, you know, <laughs> I I had everyone DVD. I had uh, I had VHS. You know, Tarantino films off 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 the TV. So I, I guess from my my own point of view, I came to this as a little bit later um, than you would, Toby, just because for age difference. I do remember thinking well, that was an enjoyable film, but the thing that stuck with me was that's the film where everybody dies, and it is the first time you watch it. it I do remember being kind of just taken aback by, oh, <laughs> they've just they've just killed him as well. Oh, I wasn't expect. Oh, he yeah, like there. now it's like a little bit contrived the whole thing a little bit. Yeah, but then it was like, oh my god, this is the greatest ending. In the history of of anything I've I've, I've ever seen, yeah. that's, that's how I felt about it. You know, I, I think I especially because about. when you're young, you do start to pick up on what an ending is or what an ending is allowed to be, mm-hmm. and so so much of the time, especially with sort of bigger productions, you know, the bad guy gets stopped and the good guy survives and that kind of thing, and so you you get into uh, almost templated version of how films are supposed to end and so when you see films such as this or something like Reservoir Dogs or, or any other sort of especially films that are particularly violent that maybe go against the grain of, of of killing the characters you spent a long time with then it does become shocking and I, I think I haven't seen the film in a couple of years but um, I remember the last time I watched it it still kind of stood up for the most part as a as a rewatchable film I don't think it's I don't think it's as good as I think Scorsese has made better films, but I think as far as a film that just sort of had a moment in time and meant something to to a particular audience, I think this is kind of right up there. Well, yeah, I mean, Scorsese ends up winning Best Picture and Best Director for this movie. You know, in many ways, it was kind of like a legacy thing. Yes, for him. I don't. For me, like I've seen internal. Affairs, and I think Eternal Affairs is an, an amazing movie, right? And and the only difficulty I have with The Departed is that The Departed is Internal Affairs. So I do, I, I actually do think it's a, this is a really great movie, completely deserving of, of, of Best Picture. The only thing that takes me aback is, well, you know, I've seen Internal Affairs, and I know like Martin Scorsese and the writers didn't really like come up with the, the stuff that happens here, but yeah. It's interesting. I was going to ask you about this, Vaughn, because obviously you have much more ties to uh, to Boston than we ever can. Mm. Um, I was just wondering, A, kind of your viewpoint on the film and also seeing a particular representation of Boston on film, because this film, while it, it you know, as Toby said, is somewhat of a remake of, of Internal Affairs, there's also an element of it playing into the, the black mass um, sort of Irish mobster element of it as well. So do you, want, do you want to give us your thoughts on the film? Yeah. Um, so I was 12 when it came out in 2006. And I saw it in cinemas with my 
Boston grandfather. Um, so it was a whole experience for me <laughs> and I have loved it ever since. It's a fantastic film. Um, as for representations of Boston, I think it's, it, so I spent most summers as a kid in Boston or the surrounding area and had my own kind of associations with Boston. And when I watched this film, I was like, oh yeah, that's Boston. And it just completely made sense to me <laughs> and kind of merged with my view of Boston. And I think I still see the city very much in that light of kind of a mixture of my childhood memories and also the departed. And there's like nothing in between for me. Even when I'm in Boston, I think about the departed and I'm like, that happens all the time here. Like, <laughs> so yeah, um, I can't say if it's accurate. I mean, well, I, I can, it's, it is accurate to stories uh, like we talked about on the Boston on film episode. Mm -hmm. Um, and as you say, Simon, it's very similar to the real life kind of happenings of Whitey Bulger and yeah. um, other Irish kind of mob crime, organized crime in Boston, especially in like the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, the representation of FBI infiltration and informants is also very accurate to organized crime across the country, as we've talked about with several uh, of the cities on film in that series and other episodes. So yeah, it's a, it's a fairly, I mean, it is a fictionalized story. And uh, as both of you have said, it's a remake of internal affairs, but it is kind of rooted in some real life representations as well. Um, and it's incredibly enjoyable. And I quote it still a lot, like a lot, <laughs> especially when when he looks down at the word citizen written on the envelope and he's like, that's not fucking right. I say that all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I love this film and I love that you chose it, Toby. And another thing about this movie is also like that there's there's the kinds of things that I, I was seeing in movies uh, before, like I, you know, I wasn't watching a lot of like R-rated movies. And there's a scene here where Frank Costello, um, like he's with like two whores, and he and he he, he splatters cocaine on the bed, and then tells um, one of the women to uh, to, to you know, cause take the cocaine. And um, not get up until she's numb. And I was, and I, and I remember thinking that, well, today, you know, I, you know, I watch so much media that that I wouldn't really register that, but that that image really stayed in in my mind because it was a kind of the first time I ever seen anything that that kind of like almost brutally lewd before. I think, and again, it's like a kind of formative. It was, it, was, it was again. It was a kind of formative uh, thing for me. Obviously, I also had like a huge crush on on Vera Farmiga as well. Um, at the at that time uh, as as well because of of this movie. What's interesting as well is that um, when it was originally getting produced, it was actually Brad Pitt who bought the the rights to it, and he was actually going to star alongside um, Leonardo DiCaprio. But then he decided that he'd oh. kind of aged out and that they needed a younger actor so they actually ended up taking on Matt Damon as a result so yeah there is actually some interesting casting possibilities with this film and different actors who 
um, could often maybe should have been taking the role instead, but they had to kind of go to a second or third choice. And yeah, Brad Pitt was originally going to be the the uh, Sullivan character. That's interesting. Yeah, the, the, there's a whole bunch of like different kind of casting what ifs around this film, which um, does make you think like how the film would have been different if they they'd gone down gone down that route. Um, but yeah, Brad Pitt is, you, is the main one. Could you imagine Brad Pitt doing a Boston accent? I really I can't. can't. No, I, really I mean know. Brad Pitt has certain characteristics and qualities as a film star. But I just, I, I do wonder whether or not he would have fitted in with the um, uh, the, the 90s British film um, where he played um, this sort of um, boxer from like a, a traveler background. It's like the Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah, the Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah. And he puts on a very strong accent for that. So I, I, I wonder whether or not he would have sort of leaned I into guess it'd it. be weird like Ray Winstone in this movie, which... Many people have said this is quite weird. Yeah, that's true. Ray Winston is in it. That is, um... I think it. I think it's competent. If you didn't know he was British, you wouldn't. I don't think you would really pay too much attention to it. Yeah. But because you do know that, it does seem a little bit contrived. Yes, I think. I guess certain actors take on certain baggage as as they come in and. Um, yeah, I, I do wonder how things would have played out if Matt Damon had not taken the role or if or someone else had taken it. I think we, we we landed sort of fairly well where we did, but it does make you wonder uh, an alternative, alternative reality where, uh, you know, Alec Baldwin isn't his character or, you know, uh, Mark Wahlberg didn't get the role. I think even Mark Wahlberg might have been like a second or third choice, I think, um, but he ended up getting an Oscar nomination for it and he is just having so much fun in this film that it really is uh um yeah it's a joy to watch let right. not all of that famous Wahlberg rage oh <laughs> uh, every time I, I hear stories about what Mark Wahlberg um kind of two things that is kind of off script but two things that come to mind is one I don't know if you ever saw his the the daily routine that he yes. like, and he's like up at like 4am and he exercises like three times a day and he's there's one point where he takes a snack for an hour and a half and it's just absolutely ridiculous. Like the schedule he apparently keeps and it's just like, what, what are you That'll doing? That'll be a euphemism. Yeah. yeah. Taking a snack for an hour Taking and a half. Taking a snack for an hour and a half. And then Do the other the thing. thing, Marky. <laughs> the other thing is Mark Wahlberg's uh, comments on 9-11 um, and the, if he'd been mm. in one of the planes when it, uh, when it, like when it was going down, like it wouldn't have gone down <laughs> yeah. that way. Yeah. And he'd been like, there would have been blood in the first class cabins or something like that. It's just, <laughs> it's just like, thanks, Mark. That's, what a that's toxic what... person. That's a high, high level male energy there. It's, it's, it's Boston. <laughs> I also like that. Well, I don't like the fact, but I find it funny the fact Mark Wahlberg is one of the few people I've ever seen in their Wikipedia page has like a whole section on hate crimes. <laughs> it's like, oh. <laughs> He, he managed to move away from that and become a successful actor, but very few people, especially successful actors, have a, a wiki session on hate crimes. Um, oh, God. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, we should probably. If the finish. hate crimes were before he was 15, I'm, I'm fine with that. They weren't. Um, no, no, yeah, but I'm just saying, like, it, with, with me and the, and the, the departed paradigms, like, I, I, I kind of disavow. My, the old Toby 
because you know like uh, he could have been saying anything and I, and I would disavow that wasn't me because you know I, I, I picked the great mouse detective here but I could have picked the bug's life you know, mm-hmm. if I was feeling a little bit differently, I could have picked Lion King like like you guys did, you know, because yeah. I like that movie as well. So, but yeah, I disavow all, all of that uh, before. So if if there are hate crimes on my Wikipedia page and they're before I was 15, then, then they're not, I don't count. Are you admitting to something, Toby? Well, I mean, it, however bad it was, <laughs> um, you know, like even if it was like a Nuremberg crime or something like that. Just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's also departed, so no. <laughs> who knows who Toby has killed? Um, but we, we will find out one day. Um, right, shall we shall we move on from this film section? And well, we need to transition into the awards section, but we were actually going to have a an, another guest pop up because it's it's crossover day on impressions of America. Um uh, I, I I guess what probably how we should introduce this is that um, we are going to uh, have a little cameo from a friend of ours, specifically a friend of Vaughn's. Um, and uh, part of this is because uh, Vaughn, this extra special guest, and myself are actually um, looking to create a little uh, limited uh, podcast um, on Star Wars. So we're going to actually have a little um, side project on Star Wars, and it gives J- Vaughn a chance to um, to shout at us about Star Wars and <laughs> Star Wars specifically in relationship to history and that that kind of thing. And uh, we are looking to do a uh, an episode, uh, an introductory episode uh, in the new year around that. So, um, Vaughn, do you want to introduce our guest, and then uh, we can uh, talk to our guest about uh, two of his uh, films that he enjoyed when he was young. Yes, of course. Um, so I'm very excited to introduce my friend, uh, Steele, who will be joining us, as Simon just said, for our Star Wars podcast in the new year. Um, yeah, you want to hey. take it away, Steele? Hey there. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Thanks, Steele. Um, so I guess the starting point is um, you can kind of round out the the film side of things that we've been talking about. Have you got two films that you can quickly tell us about that you enjoyed Uh, as a young person i'm having i'm having difficulty taking um the mental image of mark Wahlberg's performance of the happening out of my brain now of him going what no that that is a separate whole podcast i think (laughs) that is is a whole other thing you could write (laughs) many books about that um yeah so i I get to pass on that while I've been yeah, sitting here trying not to uh, laugh at some of the some of the banter, I've had two completely separate things come into my brain, and I was just hoping I could very quickly do a little honorable mention of these two things. Like, yeah, go for it. So, um, one that came into my head was uh, sort of late teens for me, because uh, when Vaughn told me about this, uh, she said that it was uh, movies from like from my teens. Um, so, late teens was a movie called Pride that came out in 2014 and uh, it's set uh, in the eighties around the miners strikes and in Thatcher's Thatcher's era. And it's just a brilliant film about a group of um, activists called LGSM uh, that's lesbians and gays support the miners that were trying to raise as much money and do as much good for um, the miners during this time. Absolutely brilliant movie. Uh, very, very British. Um, great cast. Dominic West, Andrew Scott, Bill Nye, uh, Paddy Considine. Uh, one of my favourites, uh, underrated, uh, Joseph Gilgan, 
who is just brilliant in everything he's in. And I want to see him in more stuff all the time. Just a fantastic film. So good. Oh, that's really, really interesting. Yeah. I think you told me about that before. And I yeah, actually, yeah, I did a report actually on former uh, Darren Miners uh, about a few years ago, where I actually interviewed uh, a, a number of them. I think, you know, I think, oh, amazing. I think that that topic is really interesting. And, um, and that angle of it is, is particularly fascinating. Yeah, it's yeah really- I was going to ask, is Vaughn okay with this? Because she's very pro-Thatcher. So <laughs> this, this, I'm this, very some... pro Thatcher and against the gays. <laughs> that, that's what you're known for, Vaughn. Yes. <laughs> Those are my that... two things. <laughs> Keep WWE straight, everyone. <laughs> uh, right. Well, that's an excellent choice. Um, yeah, I, my, I've seen the film and it's yeah very enjoyable. My uh, my other my other kind of honourable mention before I talk about the ones that came straight to my brain as soon as um, as soon as Vaughan told me about this was um, because I very recently um, very recently in my um, sort of early to early teens to to now have become very into so bad it's good movies and um, oh no you're one of those people I'm one of those <laughs> people I'm sorry guys um, but. Um, the one that kept it off for me was uh, The Room, uh, Tommy Wiseau's absolute So But It's Good masterpiece. So good and terrible. And just the Tommy Wiseau is such an interesting person. The writer, producer, director, and lead actor of that movie is just a very interesting man who I've had the pleasure of hugging. He doesn't feel like a human being. It's uh, <laughs> very interesting feels like he's wearing a human being. It's very, very interesting. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh, Mark. Uh, yes, the, the, room is, the Room is an interesting film. Um, one of my favourite things about the film is that he was convinced it was going to be a great success, so he actually paid for it to have a limited uh, run in theatres for six weeks or however long it needed to be. Oh, I heard about but, this. Hilarious. So it would actually be eligible for the Oscars. Sadly, it was not nominated for, for, for any Oscars, sadly, because people watched the film. But it's, um, yeah, it's a very enjoyable film um, in its own merits, if you can call it that. Oh, it's brought so much joy to so many people on mm. just how it fails in every single way when it comes to making a film. It's just astonishing. Um, very interestingly as well. Um, so Tommy was very... Um, he was very dedicated to this story that he created. Originally, it was going to be a play. And then he tried adapting it into a 500-page book. And if you've seen the movie, where what could you fill 500 pages with, with the content of that film? It's just, there's nothing there. I imagine he'd probably explore cutlery a bit more. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. This whole... a... <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say, I think there is <laughs> at least one scene in the film where, is it there's like a photograph? A photograph of a spoon. Yes, it yes. was stock. Fo- it was a stock photo that they that was in the photo in the photo frame, and um, Tommy never took it out and changed it. So it was just a framed spoon. And every time I go to the um, the fan screenings of it, uh, yes. every time the spoon appears on screen, they throw the spoon and throws plastic spoons. <laughs> it's fantastic. Well, that, that is definitely an interesting choice. Um, okay, so those are your honourable mentions. And then you've got two films that you're going to quickly tell us about. Is that correct? Well, um, when I think about, when I think about uh, teenage years, the thing, that, the thing that really, like from fairly early on teenage to all the way to the end was um, getting into superheroes. 
I'm not going to go into like MCU or anything like that, but for me, it was uh, getting deeper into the character of Batman and the way that the way that different different storytellers talk about um, talk about Batman and uh, the two the two movies that really show two two sides of that, but are also very similar, um, are Batman Under the Red Hood and Batman Mask of the Phantasm. And they are two spectacular animated films. Uh, Under the Red Hood was uh, direct-to-DVD uh, in 2000 and, ooh, I, 2010. And Mask of the Phantasm actually had a cinematic release in 1993. Um, I remember when I showed Vaughn these movies, I was very insistent on playing them back-to-back because mm-hmm. they are just two sides of the same Batman. It's just, they are absolutely fantastic. Um, Under the Red Hood is a is a story about uh, I'm I'm going to go into light spoilers for it because it's um, it's very clear that they didn't care about it being a twist they cared about how it affected Batman um, so it opens with the death of Robin and uh, who's killed by the Joker and. It shows it skips to so many years later and shows how that's affected him and changed him. And then a mysterious, uh, a mysterious new villain comes to town called the Red Hood, who wants to do what Batman does, but in a more intense way, he will kill. And he instead of trying to stop crime, he's trying to regulate it. So the first thing he does is he goes to um, a large group of drug dealers um, murders all of their lieutenants and then tells them that they can still they can still sell drugs and have their their market, but they have to cough up so much of their percentage to the Red Hood, and they can't deal to children anymore. And so he's trying to regulate crime, where Batman is trying to completely completely stop it. And it's a very interesting it's a very interesting thing where it's the two sides of the same coin, Batman and the Red Hood. And there's a mystery of who is this character that unravels brilliantly. Um, not much of a mystery, to be honest. You kind of know exactly who it's going to be, but it's about how it affects Batman. And it's just a very, it's a very dark film in a lot of ways. And it's uh, one of the first Batman films to not have Kevin Conroy. And if you know, if you know anything mm-hmm. about the kind of animated Batman universe, Kevin Conroy was the one, you know, the Batman. The voice, yes, the voice, and um, the uh, the replacement was fantastic. Uh, it was Bruce Greenwood, who you might know as playing uh, JFK in the movie Thirteen Days, and uh, yeah, he's very good. It's he's kind of a weary kind of everyman kind of Batman, not in a way that uh, he doesn't seem like the unstoppable force that Batman is, but he he's not quite as completely stoic as. Uh, Kevin Conroy is. It's a very, especially for this story, this very sort of personal and very dark story. It's it works really well, and the finale is just so much tension. Um, I also, did want to mention the brilliant portrayal of the Joker that's in it by John DiMaggio. Uh, another one where Mark Hamill would have been everyone's first choice, and it almost put me off the movie entirely when I found out he wasn't the Joker in it, but. When I watched it, uh, John DiMaggio is an, a very interesting Joker. It's sort of takes a lot from Mark Hamill, but in a more sadistic way. 
in a, in a, in a darker way. It's a, a very interesting performance, but it's just very, it's a very, very um, emotional film. And it's only an hour 15. Actually, both of these films are only an hour 15. And it's amazing how much they get out of it. Uh, do you have a second film that you were going to talk about? Yeah, so the other one was Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which came out in 1993. It was a carryover from the the famous Batman the Animated Series, which came out after the uh, 89 film and went on for a good long while, seven years, and then carried on with the Justice League show. And it made Kevin Conroy the, the very famous Batman and the Mark Hamill Joker the very famous Joker. And they... And when they released this film, um, they they thought, yeah, no, this is good enough for a cinematic release, and it is. Uh, it didn't get as much attention when it came out, and people think that's to to do with the marketing. But uh, a couple of years later, uh, Siskel and Eber did a review of it, uh, talking very positively about it, saying how it was the one of the best um, one of the best uh, superhero stories they'd ever seen. Um, there's a moment in it where um, they actually talk negatively about Mark Hamill's Joker, which I think put a lot of people in uproar when they go back and watch it, including myself. But it's very good that uh, they even took the time to make to make a review of this this animated, basically children's movie that's an hour and fifteen long. It's just it's brilliant, and uh, it's a story where a a sort of Grim Reaper character comes to Gotham. And people at first mistake mistake them for Batman, um, but they learn soon enough that it isn't. But there's enough there that they think it's Batman, and that leads to some brilliant scenes where the police go after Batman, and the tension in them is very very high. And the lost my words. Um, and uh, yeah, the soundtrack is astonishing. Mm. Yeah, it really is so good. Yeah, and. Um, once again, performances are incredible. Um, Kevin Conroy, Mark Hamill is the Joker. Um, the character of uh, the Phantasm is a really interesting original character for the film. And uh, another great thing about it, about it is the focus of the film is on Batman and Bruce Wayne and where a lot of other Batman stories focus on the villains more than Batman himself. This one is about Batman. But half the film is uh, flashbacks to him starting out and um, starting out as Batman and a sort of him meeting the love of his life, getting in the way of that and him believing that he can't do both and believing that his parents uh, hate him for being happy. And it's a very powerful, it's a very powerful, uh, very powerful storyline works so well. Um, ah, so good. Excuse me. <laughs> No, it's, it's interesting that you ch chose uh, two Batman animated films to talk about. And I think Batman has has been probably the most established um, superhero character in the, the 20th century as, as far as media representation. Obviously, we had the, the Superman films, the live action films of the 1970s, but that, then after that, um, it really was starting in the 80s with the live action, obviously, animated films you're talking about and then the, the various live representations that we've had from the 90s and consistently on um it, it does seem that through both the whatever batman it is that's been told on on screen and, and also the gotham city um background and character in itself and then the, the excellent rogues gallery, gallery that batman has 
that there is a, a rich world for different filmmakers and different storytellers to, to use. And obviously we've got the, the Batman live film, which is coming out, I think it's next year, uh, which again will uh, tell a, a different story. So Batman does seem to be such a fertile ground for, for storytellers to use. And um, it's interesting that those are, those are the, the two films that, that you chose. Absolutely. It's a very, it's a very timeless character. Um, so much opportunity for storytelling as, you know, almost a hundred years of comics can, can tell you. Um, the, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned Gotham City being a character in itself, because I feel like in the animated series and in this film, mm-hmm. especially, that is so clear. Like they choose uh, an Art Deco style and they don't set a, it's kind of a hodgepodge of a lot of different eras. So a lot of the cars look like they're from the forties. Like the air vehicles, for example, they look like nothing that's ever really existed because they take the Art Deco style and what existed in the forties and go, this is what a helicopter would look like in that time. Um, And there's, there's also things, there's also, there's also things like technology from like the nineties when it came out mixed in. And it's just, it's very interesting. And I think that's what um, the new Batman film that's coming out with Robert Pattinson is also doing. It's having this sort of, this sort of nowhere time. And also what the film Joker did as well, where it didn't feel like it had, it felt like it had bits of a lot of different time. And like Gotham in that was very similar where it sort of felt like, it sort of felt like a lot of different times at once. And that's, that's what I very much love about the, uh, the design of Gotham. Uh, that and that the art style is drawn on black paper instead of white, which mm. adds to the effect of this dark city, this uh, mm. this very moody ground for Batman. Just absolutely fantastic. I mean, I, I could talk about the the design choices in the animated Batman TV series for for hours, but um, we probably <laughs> probably should move on for that. Just quickly, um, do you guys want to just very briefly mention the Star Wars podcast and? Uh, um, kind of what that's going to entail. Yes, I do. <laughs> Thank you. Um, also, quickly, I love those Batman films. They're so good. If you haven't seen them, you should definitely check them out. Um, try and find them online somewhere because they're worth it. So Star Wars. Yeah. Um, our beloved, devoted listeners will have listen to the Star Wars episode that we did on Impressions of America back in May for Star Wars Day, May the 4th. That episode was so fun that we were joking for about nine months or so since. Like, what if we just did a Star Wars podcast? And then Simon one day was like, but like, what if we did a Star Wars podcast? So we're doing it. And it's going to be very much in line with that episode um, of impressions of melding the kind of real world history of America in the 20th century and into the 21st with the storylines that we see in Star Wars. Um, so, So taking kind of themes of justice in Star Wars and how that relates to the times uh, in which the films and television series were created that discuss themes of justice and how it changes over time, both on screen and in the real world. Um, We're gonna look at all sorts of history with it beyond that. And I'm insanely excited about it 
I can't wait. And as Simon said, it really is kind of an excuse for me to yell about Star Wars. Um, it will be a limited series with uh, X many episodes per per season. Uh, and w- yeah, we're we're gonna try and start this up in January. So keep an eye out, and we will let you know here on Impressions when it is ready. Indeed. And so we're doing the, the first episodes as more of a kind of introduction for ourselves and as a way to kind of talk about Star Wars before we get into the kind of history side of it. So we're going to be doing a, a deep dive a deep dive on episode four. So uh, if you've not seen episode four, Vaughn will shout at you. But um, another reason to watch it is so that you can um, listen along afterwards, um, because we will be diving into that. And I'm sure Vaughn will have some thoughts and I'm sure Steele will have some thoughts and I'm sure I will listen patiently and observe these two. Um, well, I guess, I guess it'd be fair to say uh, you guys are probably, I mean, I like Star Wars, but you two are probably, big, Vaughn, you certainly are bigger Star Wars fans than I am. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like 100% Simon. I mean, I'm not one to gatekeep, but. Uh, Whoa. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not gatekeeping. I was not accusing you of gatekeeping. Oh, okay. Well. She's very you know, I can't wait. <laughs> I'm really excited about it. I'm also really excited because my um, my knowledge of American history is stops at sixth form college. So I'm going to learn something and I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think a, a good way of pitching this podcast is somewhere between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Richard Nixon. So I think that's, that's a, a good I don't. Point. I don't. I don't know about all that, Simon. I don't know about well, that. Well, we already established on the previous episode that without Richard Nixon, there would be no Star Wars. So. Um, let's, yeah, so <laughs> let's just remember that. Right. <laughs> so jot that uh, down. Jot that down. Star Wars starts first of, uh, well, whatever day in January it was that he got, uh, he got, uh, became president in 69. Um, yeah, I'm sold on this, uh, Star Wars Nixon podcast. I'm, exactly. Uh, yeah. Totally, I'm totally we, we might parachute you in from time to time just to give readings from different, um, Nixon speeches to to help cement the the, the form of the podcast. If that's oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I think that's you. You, you guys are going to need that. I think. I mean, yes, obviously, <laughs> like, the, the you know, galaxy far, far away, and all, all the lightsabers and stuff. But you know, yeah, I mean, if you, galaxy if you do need far, some Nixon far, in the galaxy that, far, yeah. far away, someone has just become a senator from California. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. Um, Right, shall we move on to the awards and I guess um, say goodbye to Steel. So Steel, thank you very much for coming on the show and uh, we will, uh, well, I'm very excited to, to talk to you about Star Wars in January. Thank you very much for having me and letting me word vomit about Batman. That's always <laughs> good. Yeah, really set the nerd tone there Literally. for the yeah. Star Wars. Well, yeah. if anything, <laughs> if that's anything to go by in 12 months time, Steel and I will be doing our own Batman podcast. So Yes. Well, wow. so, Wait, hold on. I want in on that. Well, we'll I'll have time for that. Let's see how you go. Um, yeah. yeah, my audition is the Star Wars podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay. White Chapel Gallery again for this uh, <laughs> uh, that, that podcast. That was that was two years ago. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That was two years ago, like last week, when when Toby interviewed me for impressions. You yeah. guys have been saddled with me for two years. As a third choice, you've worked out not too badly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you, Steele. Um, 
we are now going on to the last part of the show, um, last part of 2021, which is um, the Impressions of America Awards for 2021. Um, I say it's the last part of the show. Technically, there's going to be a little reading by Vaughn at the end just to, to mark this Christmas occasion. Um, but uh, this is uh, our chance now to talk a little bit about 2021 and Impressions of America. So before we get into the categories, I've, I've noted a few things down and we can just rap about that for a little bit. How what are your thoughts about the podcast in 2021 and the topics we've covered and who we've talked to and your memories of it? Toby, do you want to go first and just your your your, jet, your impressions off impressions of America in 2021? Uh, I think um, I think in 2021, impressions of America uh, try to do some some things uh, different. I think there was the creation, obviously, of the. The film series, I think, which is, uh, as I talked about, has been more of a creative experiment. And, and I think it's been, been really interesting. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's we've changed tact um, a little bit from the uh, history series uh, that we were doing. And uh, I think I think episodes uh, this year have been funnier. Um, they've they've been a more conversational and um things have come up that that wouldn't come up in the sort of more structured style that that we that we were doing and and yeah and i hope uh, in the future we we sort of uh, mix the two uh, different styles of impressions uh, a, a little bit more it's, it's because it, obviously because i gave off up uh, editorial control to to Simon and, and Vaughn and, and people like that, yeah. I mean, you yeah, know, that's uh, as soon as you it's been beneficial, I think, for the for the podcast. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's also worth mentioning before we go any further. Um, I know Toby doesn't like praise; he's a very humble man. Um, but once again, Toby's ability to book various guests on the show, and the fact we have a, a guest coming up in January, um, fingers crossed, if that all goes successfully, uh, which again is very exciting for us and particularly Vaughn. So. I would just like to acknowledge on the podcast again, Toby, your your, your ability to, to add people onto this uh, onto our show has been uh, another excellent year of doing that. So thank you for that. I don't know. The, uh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I I am a very modest uh, man. <laughs> thank you for also uh, saying that as well. Because I your modesty is only to... matched by your beauty, Toby. Well, yeah, no, I'll take, take that as well, to be honest. Um, yeah, but no, I am very <laughs> modest, and, and I think that was that, that was the highest uh, praise of my modesty. Uh, Vaughn, do you actually remember recording any of the shows, or are they more just sort of a drunken blackout at this point? Oh, mostly drunken blackout, yeah. Um, <laughs> I just real quick, want to echo that. Like, Toby is incredible, absolutely phenomenal with booking just astounding guests. And I'm very excited for the one coming up in January. Um, and it all really comes down to Toby being fantastic. So show him some love. Um, yeah. And that invitation to go with Toby to Paris is still open to. Oh, yes. I forgot we were doing that. Yeah. So someone uh, still needs to win. So I can't remember what exactly it was built around, but. If someone wants, <laughs> if someone wants to contact us and would like to go to, to Paris with Toby, please reach out and we will uh, do some sort of vetting process. And if they are suitably in love with Italian cinema enough, or you know whatever whatever criteria it is we need to match it against, then they they, <laughs> they too can go to, to Paris with Toby. Yeah, the the emails is going to come to my uh, email address. Is is all 
as uh, impressions of America uh, internal comms does. So yeah, like if if you if you don't really meet the requirements that Simon and Vaughan never know about, so yeah, you'll you'll never be gossiped about. So so uh, that's yeah. So please re- reach out and we can, <laughs> can, can spend a weekend in Paris with them. Um, sorry, Vaughan, you were saying. Oh yeah. Um... I really enjoyed a lot of the things that we did this year. Uh, I really loved the film series uh, of America on film, going through various cities, and then our 4th of July special. Um, we've That was a chance for me to watch a lot of films that I had not seen before, that both of you had seen. Um, because I think, I think I've mentioned it before that I wasn't really a film person when I was a kid. Um, and well into kind of adulthood too, actually, I liked films, but I was never really a cinephile, I think, mm-hmm. um, until one day I decided I would do it for my PhD. And you guys have really been very instrumental in catching me up on a lot of cultural things that I should have seen um, to date. So I really appreciate that on a personal note. But yeah, as Toby said, I think I think we've really hit a groove with kind of our conversations and we laugh a lot on the podcast now and I love that for us that's great um it's been a really fun year and yeah I I feel closer to both of you oh yeah well not really Simon but Toby I feel closer to you and I appreciate that yeah that's 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 wonderful it's it's really good to know (laughs) um yeah yeah and um, no, I, I really hope this uh, the the Star Wars podcast uh, goes really well because um, I met uh, Steel and, and he seems like a really interesting, engaging person. Actually, I couldn't get a word in an edgewise uh, with him, so yeah, he's, <laughs> he's probably going to dominate that uh, podcast as well, which is good. It's good to know. He's he's sitting here silently listening to you right now. <laughs> It, it makes sense why he'd be friends with Bond then, if, if that's his characteristics. Um, Thanks. Okay, shall, shall we move on from the hideous nature of Vaughn's personality and get on to the categories? Um, I've only got a handful here, um, wait, but I've, wait, I've not... Wait, Simon, Simon, uh-huh. you didn't say how you feel about your impressions oh, of impressions of normally you Normally you don't give a shit what I have to think about things. So well, I'm, I fucking don't, but I wanted to say impressions of impressions of America. So go for it, Simon. Um... Echoing a lot of what you guys have said, it's been a really enjoyable year. Um, the doing the film series, I think, was a interesting move for us, um, and we'll probably be touched upon in some of the categories we're going to talk about. But having that kind of level of research around um, some of the cities it was a really interesting thing for myself. And um, you know, as the kind of the, the kind of central host of, of this show, a lot of my time is kind of um, thinking up questions and thinking about directions to, to move a particular show in and as always you guys you know continue to contribute in such amazing ways and your level of research and your level of input into the questions and the answers has, has been great um i think what's been interesting is that we've as you say mixed conversational shows with trying to take on you know politics um and trying to take on um some different subjects we did a couple of different episodes but i think there's one where I did a solo interview with a guest and I think Toby also did a solo interview with a guest. So again, just kind of 
having different pocket episodes where we veer off, I think was an interesting um, uh, change of speed for us. And I think just the variety of, of different subjects that we've covered, you know, we, we started the year doing a, a January 6th politics episode and the last episode we just did was on the history of wrestling in America. Uh, and so we, we've covered so many different topics. It's It's been a really worthwhile year for myself. And um, as always, I just, I love speaking to you guys. You guys are uh, so much fun to, to talk with and uh, listen to me attempt to, to do intros and tell my bad jokes so yeah uh, I as much as Vaughn hates it I do actually enjoy speaking to her um and I as always I just any chance I get to speak to Toby day or night I'm always excited by so um thank you guys <laughs> um right uh, I've got a couple uh, I've got five or six different categories here which we'll just briefly touch upon um so the first uh, first category is best rant of, of the show in 2021. So I've got a, a few different selections here and you guys can tell me if I've missed any or if you've got any particular memories um, you want to, to nominate uh, or choose any in particular. So I've got uh, Vaughn's defense of the prequels, uh, Toby versus Australia, Vaughn versus Jersey, Vaughn versus liberals, Vaughn versus Joseph McCarthy, Simon versus televangelists, and uh, Vaughn versus QAnon and balance reporting. Um, so any thoughts on any of those and any other, or if there's any other nominations you'd like to throw out on the best round of 2021? Uh, so this was televangelists on, on which podcast? I honestly can't remember the episode. I, I just remember at one point I did kind of do my usual, which happens every few months where I'll just round. That, feel, was that Reagan? Yeah, that was last year. That oh, was, was that like, the last year? Christian okay. Yeah, because I would Reagan. definitely pick that one if it was, because it was the most great rant. If, yeah. Okay, so that one isn't eligible, but that's always in the back of my mind that I'm always against the televangelists. Um, out the ones that are eligible, then um, any particular favorites? Uh, could you list them again? Yeah, I'll go for it. Um, so we've got Vaughn's defense of the prequels, Toby versus Australia, Vaughn versus Jersey, which I think happens most episodes, to be honest. Uh, same with Vaughn versus liberals, which happens quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, Vaughn versus Joseph Joseph McCarthy, um, which I think might have popped up in our Liberal Hall of Fame episode, from what I recall. And then uh, not that long ago, we'd had uh, Vaughn versus QAnon and Balance reporting. Um, yeah, Vaughn's very confrontational. Yeah, um, I am realizing this right now. Why do I have so many? <laughs> but I would say, uh, I think, wait. Uh, uh, what was the first? What were the first? Series? So we had Vaughn's defense of the prequels, the Star Wars prequels. Yeah, yeah, no, it's that one. Yeah, it's that one. The Vaughn's oh, defense of the prequels. I thought that was I thought it was really good. Um, obviously, she didn't have an ed- an educated enough uh, person to confront her on on her her bad views on on, on these things. But um, uh, no, I thought it was really it was really good. It was a perspective, uh, quite coherent and uh, uh, reasoned and detailed perspective that. I hadn't heard uh, uh, before, so no, I thought it was I thought it was really good. And people have said as well, uh, people who've talked about that podcast have talked about the was defense of the of the prequels. Yeah, it's a, it is a very passionate uh, passionate defense of the prequels. If I, I would actually go as far as to say that the, her defense of the prequels was actually better than the prequels themselves. Um, Vaughn, thank you. And, thank and, you any, any any thoughts, Vaughn? Um, I I'm gonna throw a curveball in here and go oh, off go script. Um. Toby and me ranting 
anything about the guy in Sunset Boulevard not wanting to have sex with yes that that I I think was the best rant that I'd forgotten all about that one that's a good choice oh yeah yeah that was yeah yeah, because we were both kind of incredulous about it and I still am I don't understand she's fantastic yeah 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 one's one was called there like a smokestack yeah, smoke show. Yeah. She's the smoke, smoke show, show or something. Yeah, smoke show. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. That is a good one. We don't yeah. actually have to pick a, a specific winner. We can just, this is more just of a chance to talk about, unless you guys want to, unless you guys want to accumulate a, a, a winner for each category, in which case it sounds as if maybe we're going with the Sunset Boulevard one. What do you guys, do you, do you want to pick an individual winner or do you want to just sort of each of us pick one of our own? What, what, what do you think? pick our own take our own okay um and if anyone in the audience wants to throw some at us also on twitter please do at usa impressions tell us tell us what we did well praise yes tell us about ranting uh right (laughs) the next category is uh funniest moment on the show of 2021 so again there might have been some that i missed i just did this kind of quickly to put together as Mm. a starting point but um i've got toby's rfk pre-episode remark it was that one. <laughs> there are no JFK. other ones. That was the funniest thing that's ever happened. <laughs> discussing, discussing JFK Jr. returning and Toby's just incredulous response to that. Um, our attempts at creating a liberal Hall of Fame. Vaughn realizing that she could have been in Silver Linings Playbook in another time and place. <laughs> and that then we've also... Funny. And then but... I've also got Whenever Vaughn Drinks. So... <laughs> all uh, the time i think it, i'm gonna go with my rfk it was rfk it was yeah. definitely rfk there's nothing funnier than that i don't know it if was. we ever released that i think we might have at the end of one of the episodes i think it might have been a clip Maybe. um i have a feeling that was the case it, basically what it was um was I, I will sometimes throw sort of warm-up questions just so that we can test that the mics are working and um toby i asked toby kind of a question about was his favorite moment of the 1960s or, or something like that? I can't remember exactly what the question was. And Toby answered with, it was the, the death of RFK, which really caught us off guard. And is, uh, is a, I was like, is, the, 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 <laughs> so I was like, oh, cleaning house, Toby. And I was like, yeah, the 60s really clean house. Really well. no, was funny, like, we got rid of one. Let's move on to, to yeah. RFK. Right. Was I think we can. So immediate and calm. Yes. The assassination <laughs> of RFK. And we were both like, what? That had been in the chamber for a while, I think. Oh, so good. <laughs> right. Um, the next one is uh, favorite thing to research for an episode. Um, so th- we obviously have done various different topics. Um, I-, I just picked a handful of different, well, two or three different ones here. So one was was delving into Walter Cronkite because Toby and I had a, a real interest for one of the key interests of our, our first start in this podcast was actually to talk about Walter Cronkite. So that, that was kind of a highlight for myself. Uh, another one was whenever we did, did the film series, I also tried to do a little bit of research, but in particular researching the history of New York and the different boroughs I, I found really interesting. And then also um, digging into a little bit on the pro pro wrestling side of things I thought was fun as well. Um, do you guys have any, any particular fond memories of, of researching things for an episode? Uh I would say I would say that the 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 research for me was probably the water Cronkite research. I think mm. 
Yeah, I I I think pro. I I think probably like I I really like that New York podcast a lot, mm-hmm. and I listen to it all the time. But the 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 research for the Warsaw Cronkite was probably the the best research for me. Uh, Vaughn, uh, any particular research you enjoyed? Um, I have several actually. Um, Go for it. I really, I really enjoyed doing all of the cities on film, as we had talked about on the last one that we did. Um, when you asked me how it was going, I it was really interesting to kind of delve into the history of cities that I either knew personally or had no kind of personal attachment to, or any real kind of knowledge of the city before I did it. So that was a really interesting kind of glimpse into American history in these very specific pockets. And I really enjoyed it. Um, Obviously I enjoyed the star Wars one enough to say, we're starting a new podcast on it. So loved that. That was great. Um, I really loved the American patriotism episode Mm. and reading uh, Ben Railton's book because that was just such a fascinating view of patriotism. And that was, that was an episode that we don't do very frequently of looking at a theme rather than a kind of a specific instance in history or a filmic representation or something. So that was, that was different and very interesting um, and aligned a lot with my current work on my dissertation also. So that was, that was cool. And then probably rivaling star wars for my favorite would be the west wing because i watched all of the west wing mm, in a week. yes and that was great research because i got to watch a ton of excellent television so well, i'm, I'm glad episode, i really enjoyed that one yeah you did uh did some great binge binge watching for that one mm-hmm. um right okay um the next category is best moment in the group chat from 2021 um I've tried to keep these clean as possible. Um, if, <laughs> if, if some of the, some things weren't fit for broadcast, so no. I've got a, I've got a few things noted down here. Now, obviously, we talk quite a lot and we talk quite a lot of nonsense, so uh, I'm I've missed lots of things. But these are the things I've got written down. Toby trying to get involved in the Baldwin lawsuit, I thought was quite enjoyable. Um, I'm almost scared to say this one, but Simon and George Clooney, I'm not sure if I should expand upon that too much further. Um, you should, because you you deserve a, <laughs> an award for what you did. I can maybe briefly touch upon that once I do the other nominations. Mm-hmm. Um, Vaughn getting excited about a future guest. Um, you were very excited about our, our future guest coming up, Vaughn. I really um, all the jokes about Kamala uh, going to Yale after she finishes. <laughs> uh, that was really funny. Anything with Mayor Pete because he was Mayor a, Pete. Mayor Pete. Yes, he, he was a constant source of fun. Um, Toby running the Matthew McConaughey campaign, which sadly uh, hasn't, sadly hasn't gone anywhere. Yeah, and then I've cause, also because he drops out. He, well, did, well, he, yeah. he verbally drops out. Yeah, and then and I've I, just I got, had it. Uh, it's too hard to talk about, actually. Emotional. And yeah. then the last point I had down, which I think is more of just a general point of discussion over the last few years of knowing Toby, is just Toby versus Generation X. And yeah, um, Gen X, of course. Yeah. So those are the points I'd written down. Um, are there any ones that jump out or anything that I was missing? And like I say, I'll, I'll touch on my, my George Clooney story shortly. 
Um, and I think my favorite is the Kamala Harris Yale stuff because that had some Mayor P in it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'll just explain that we don't necessarily think uh, Kamala is too much of a serious politician on a national level. And I've been beating the drum um, quite firmly that I think she'll probably end up working at Yale in a few years' time rather than running for president, um, or at least becoming president anyway. Um, so yes, if she does indeed get a job as the chancellor of Yale or, or something like that, then I would definitely like some credit for that. Uh, my George Clooney story, which is a whole separate thing in itself, honestly can't remember how this came about other than one of my weird fever dreams that I sometimes have from now and again. Um, I, I told a, a, what I would like to consider a true story, although George Clooney would probably um, say different on this. For the couple of times that George why, why I, would he say different Simon? I, I don't know. I, I think he, he may be a little bit um embarrassed of some of his past actions and now that he's a, he's a married man. Um but uh, yes, I I told uh, quite a long story and quite a detailed story of uh, George and I together in Italy and um some of the, the adventures and activities we got up together and some of the, the lasting friendship that uh, stuck around as a as a result of, of what we got up to. And it was. I thought it was, it was, quite it was George and me. I thought it was. <laughs> well, I, after after I I retold the the story to them, I think Toby did say that I had just told the most beautiful love story of his life um, during, <laughs> during my lunch break. So I think Toby was quite moved. I think Vaughn was more. I don't know if terrified is the right word, but I think concerned might have been correct. I. I was like, I saw a couple notifications pop up and I like skimmed through them and I was like, what is happening in the group chat? And then I didn't see it for a couple hours. And then I read through all of it and I was like, guys, are you okay? <laughs> what are you doing? Because it was a love story, but there was also like a murder and intrigue and like <laughs> bodies and how there's this unspoken love between the two of them. And every year on the anniversary of burying this body, George sends you things or something. It was beautiful, but I was also like, had a therapist on speed dial, you know? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I you know, I, th- I think I have a very cold heart. Um, but the last time I, I really felt like that was um, when I watched Call Me By Your Name. And, yes. Um, that, uh, yeah, yes, it had really lots that, that vibe. That back uh, for, for me. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to speak speak too much about our past on the podcast, but George and I definitely will always have a bond that will live, live beyond the, the mortal. Um, right. That was the best moments of the group chats. Um, yes, I, I do. I do agree that the Kamala jokes about uh, going to Yale and anything to do with Mayor Pete were always a highlight. Um, the last... also... Wait, I want to oh. also throw in Toby in Australia and not believing that Australia is a real place. Please just sort of generally incredulous belief that Australia it's is a favorite. real country. Yeah, just constant, <laughs> constant bemusement that Australia should count as a real country or shouldn't count as a real country in, in Toby's viewpoint. Um, yeah, there's a there's a there's a guy who I know who's a radio consultant. Uh, he went to the the most I think the most prestigious university in in Australia. He he actually listens to this podcast. He was a friend of mine, and uh, I've convinced him that Australia doesn't exist, so, <laughs> given that he's from Australia and uh, you know done some things there. I think I think I'm making some inroads, and uh, and we will continue. Uh, to make inroads on that, on that, on like the Australia is doesn't exist campaign. Well said, Toby. Right, the last three uh, might be a little bit quicker. Um, so the next category I have is 
favourite new film that you watched for the show in 2021? So this is a film, uh, as Vaughn had been saying, that um, you hadn't seen before, but you watched for the, for the sake of the, the podcast. Um, the, the two that sprung to mind for myself was uh, Judas and the Black Messiah and mm-hmm. Malcolm X, uh, both of which were really good and I hadn't seen before. So really glad to watch those uh, two films. Uh, any, any films for, your, for yourself, guys, that um, you hadn't seen before uh, and you watched for, for the podcast? Boogie Nights. Yes, you, you love Boogie Nights. Loved Boogie Nights so much. I'm so happy that Toby brought that into my life. Hmm. Yeah. Toby, uh, any any particular film or uh, anything spring to mind for this category? That I had not seen before. Oh. Uh, I don't think I'd ever wa- finished the Blues Brothers before. And I thought that oh. was... That was really, that was really, really good. Uh, really, it was really, really funny, uh, really unconventional uh, storytelling, and a lot of like the scenes were really unconventionally. I thought that's uh, yeah, I think it's probably the best film. film but, but to be honest, like it's me, and I've and after the Departed, I watched all of the films, so uh, <laughs> I've I've seen all the best the best movies before that we were talking about. So yeah, but yeah, the Blues Brothers movie, I I had never really watched um uh, throughout and i thought that was uh, that was a really great movie definitely a classic right um the next category is favorite liberal failure of the year now this could be a category that could go on for years but Mm. the liberal failures i had noted down were uh student debt voting rights build back better and the filibuster um any other ones or anything in particular you want to add to that Fucking student debt, man. God damn, I'm so mad. Biden said today, he's like, oh, you're welcome. We're giving him a moratorium until May. We're so amazing. Go fuck yourself, Joe Biden. You you promised us no more debt. Not no more debt until May. Like, what a dick. And he's like, this is for you. I did this for you. Fuck you. Yeah, it's like an eviction moratorium. Like, exactly. like, You're going to be evicted in two months? Come on. Wait. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Fucked really up. appreciate it. Going to be great for the economy and your election cycle next year in the midterms by forcing people to start paying their loans back in May, right before the the primary uh, primaries finish off and your nominations go through. Good one, Joe. Real smart. I think I would probably add that the Joe Biden's overall polling right now. Obviously, actually, one of the, the major liberal failures is the, the issue of, of, of Afghanistan, isn't it? You know? Oh, yeah. But I think it's the overall polling failure by Biden this year. And to be honest, like, a lot of people on the right and the left in the community uh, commentariat. And obviously, from the opinion polls, seem to be unhappy with Joe Biden. But I, I don't, I don't think he's done that badly, really. But the fact that he's not been able to communicate the things that he has done well is, I think, is the major failure. Yes, okay. um, that is also, a good one. Impeachment was this year, the second one, which feels like a decade ago, but that was this year. <laughs> was and that this year? That Jesus was this Christ. year because of January sixth. And how nothing has happened with January 6th yet. That's also a, definitely a liberal failure, I think. Probably yes. a glaring one. 
I also, I'd also like to nominate the fact that um, all the Democrats shitposting about God, make sure you you vote in twenty twenty two or whatever in order to, you know, keep keep Roe versus Wade and all this kind. Of, it's like, how many times do we need to vote for Democrats to be in charge of things in order for them to do anything? Right. Their most effective, their most effective campaign so far as a body seems to be stopping uh, Bernie Sanders from taking the nomination. They seem very, they seemed very, that seemed a very achievable goal for them. That was something they all came together on. And then as soon as they're given the two houses and the white house, they're like, well, we can't do anything, you know, just vote for us again, please. And we'll just not do anything then. So yeah, that, that continues to be, um, yeah. And the fact that, that they will not, move forward with trying to remove the filibuster and that kind of thing is just yeah yeah the major liberal failure is that they're still playing by the book even though republicans haven't even seen the book in like four decades like they don't republicans when they're in power do not give a fuck what they do and they will they will go against every rule they can to do what they want to do and democrats are like oh but the filibuster fuck off like you yeah. have the ability to change this. You have the power in two of these branches of our government. Do something about it. Like, stop telling us to vote and, like, write to your congressperson. Like, yes, be an active citizen. Vote. Write to your congressperson. But if your congressperson is sending you copy and pasted responses, and then you, even when you push it further and you challenge them, they just send you the exact same carbon copy. Like, fucking do your job. This is your job. You, you campaigned for this. We voted for you. And now you're angry because, because you want us to vote for you again in the future. Like, do something and we will, maybe. Do something. Glad to see we've marched again another round in before the end of the year. <laughs> and Big Bird, no, um... Right. Uh, the last category I had was a, a nice sort of second half to the previous one, which is uh, best Republican act of evil for 2021. Now, obviously, oh. there could there could be many. The, the ones I had down were January 6th, mm-hmm. the, war on, the war on woke slash uh, critical race theory. Uh, I, I just wrote down Florida, just generally. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love how Florida now has like Ron DeSantis and... and- He's like, okay, Florida now has like a person you can really like. Well, they get their personal army for him. So, that, yeah, because uh, so like, can... like the, the Florida politicians before Rubio and. Um, Oops, uh, didn't we as, as governor, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, he's kind of a little bit wishy-washy. But like Ron DeSantis is like the, the swamp must monster from Florida, you know, like all, all the. Yes. All the Florida hayseeds, uh, you know, they they worship uh, for him, and and he has actually has a chance of being the Republican nominee. I'm, I'm really glad yeah. glad that you, that he's emerged. You know, the two others I had was the celebration of Rittenhouse and death threats against oh. Dr. Fauci. Um, any any particular ones that you? Uh, it's going to be Jan Jan six for me. Uh, the Rittenhouse thing, to be honest, I don't fully understand uh, that situation. Um, at all, not really. It's a very confusing to me. Um, Florida, Florida has been terrible. Florida has definitely been terrible. It, it runs close, but uh, Jan six is uh, 
something is going to live in, on in infamy. You know, probably, probably will outlast all of us, you know, in civics classes and in you know, 20, um, 2089 and stuff. So, uh, Bon, you got a, you got a favorite to act of evil from the Republicans? I mean, definitely not favorite in any way, but the one that is the most abhorrent to me is Texas bringing back the schematics of the fugitive slave laws and empowering citizens to turn in anyone they want on hearsay of having an abortion for a reward like that is (laughs) fucking horrendous (laughs) that's genuinely one of the most abhorrent things i can think of in the u.s government of today i wonder if you can like like do a citizen's arrest and like bring like a, a woman in to you know the county jail or something like that. And I think that'd be really fun if if you could do that. You know, I think it's I think it's something that uh, some people might be planning to do, and and I, I yeah. think it's really interesting. Certainly, yeah, it would be my favorite thing that the Republicans have done in terms of evil, but it's not the worst. So I I think it's Genesis. Yeah, it, once we do our live Texas episode, we will be able to make a citizen's arrest against Vaughn, and I think that will be appreciated by myself and Toby and many, many others as well. Including the FBI. It's on you, Simon. Because I... <laughs> right. Um, that, that, I think, brings an end to our awards, unless you want to give a shout-out to anything else happening in 2021. Um, I just want to say, again, thank you guys for making this a very enjoyable podcast this last year. Um, and, yeah, I guess where we're at now is that uh, we're going to finish the year with uh, Vaughn giving a little Christmas reading. Yes, let's do this. Um, So I'm going to read a passage from Charles Dickens from A Christmas Carol. Um, It is my favorite passage because I think it's the funniest part of the book. And Dickens is actually very funny. uh, If you can get past the 40 line sentences. But okay, so this is from very early in the book. Uh, just after the introduction of who Scrooge is and kind of his character. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of neighboring offices, like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole, and was so dense without that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything. One might have thought that nature lived hard by and was brewing on a large scale. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond, a sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like only one coal. 
but he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room. And so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. A Merry Christmas, Uncle! God save you! cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge, humbug. He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome. His eyes sparkled and his breath smoked again. Christmas a humbug, uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned the nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment, said bah again and followed it up with humbug. Don't be cross, uncle, said the nephew. What else can I be, returned the uncle, when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas! Out upon Merry Christmas! What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer? A time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of months presented dead against you? If I could worry, work my will, said Scrooge indignantly. Every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. Uncle, pleaded the nephew. Nephew, returned the uncle sternly. Keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it, re repeated Scrooge's nephew, but you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone then, said Scrooge. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say, returned the nephew. Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around. Apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe it has done me good and will do me good. And I say, God bless it. The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded. Becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked the fire and extinguished the last frail spark forever. Let me hear another sound from you, said Scrooge, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir, he added, turning to his nephew. 
I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. Scrooge said that he would see him. Yes, indeed, he did. He went the whole length of the expression and said that he would see him in the extremity first. But why, cried Scrooge's nephew, why? Why did you get married, said Scrooge? Because I fell in love. Because you fell in love, growled Scrooge. As if that were the only thing that in, in the world more ridiculous than a merry Christmas. Good afternoon. Nay, uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as a reason for not coming now? Good afternoon, said Scrooge. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon, said Scrooge. I am sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel to which I have been a party, but I have made the trial an homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humor to the last. So a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon, said Scrooge, and a Happy New Year. Good afternoon, said Scrooge. His nephew left the room without an angry word, notwithstanding. He stopped at the outer door to bestow the greetings of the season on the clerk, who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge, for he returned them cordially. There's another fellow, muttered Scrooge, who overheard him. My clerk with 15 shillings a week and a wife and family, talking about a merry Christmas, I'll retire to Bedlam. I'm going to end it there, but I Thank love you. Charles Dickens. He's very funny. That was a lovely reading. Um, So yes, Merry Christmas from all of us here in Impressions of America. Um, Thank you for listening to this podcast and uh, this last year of podcasts from us. And Um, our humbug, if you you thought that Scrooge was the hero of that um, that whole (laughs) section as well. Bar humbug to all of you and uh, bar humbug uh, New Year. Don't worry, the, the ghost of RFK will come and cheer Toby up, and then uh, he will see the light. Um, we should uh, we should probably end, end the show there. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we will have another episode for you in the near future. And uh, look out for the Star Wars podcast, uh, which uh, is going to be called uh, The Joy of Star Wars, uh, to fit in with Bond's last name. Um, that will be coming the first episode in January as well. Um, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, goodbye. Bye.